invite Elder Tom Halls to come and preach the word to us this morning. Thank you, Matt. Good to be with you all today. I love stories. In fact, I made my living for years as a storyteller, visually, but a storyteller nonetheless. So I love stories. So today, if you'll indulge me just a little bit, we're going to take three stories. Um, and we're going to look at these stories in maybe a different way than some of the the last two have been looked at in the past, but we're going to see. And they basically involve grace and grace without compromise. Now, what's the difference between compromise and grace? A lot of people today would say they're the same thing, just trying to get along. When we compromise with somebody, we feel like we've given in, perhaps abandoned a personal desire and given it up for somebody else. Compromise can be a way of life for people. You can do it out of love. You can do it out of fear. There's a lot of ways that we could do that. But grace is different. It is undeserved favor. It's forgiveness. It is the true meaning of love. And it is the true morality. As Christians, we are called to grace. We are not called to compromise. Now, one of the first story I'm going to tell you is one I lived, so it's a little silly, so forgive me for this. And this is always dangerous because uh, later on, somebody will say, oh, they remember this silly little story, but they forget the lesson of the Bible, so forgive me on that. Years ago, when I was growing up, I was a little boy, about six or seven, I had a little dog, a dachshund. Okay, and anybody who's had a dachshund, you know, they're, they're just made funny. They're like put together by committee, you know. They, they're just made funny. And this dog was smart as they come. She was great. Her name was Isabel. And she, you know, would look at you, cock their head, and look at you and stuff. And on our ranch, where I grew up, my mother had these highly polished floors, right? And this poor little dog with the pads of its of its uh, paws would try and run on those floors and the front would go this way and the back would go this way and it was a never-ending cause for humor. Also in this house was a, a dish rag that hung next to, the, next to the kitchen sink. Well Isabel in her puppiness decided that that dish rag would be a great toy and she would jump up and grab the dish rag and run through the house as fast as she could. And then she'd step on the dish rag and she'd grab it in her mouth and shake it. Well, my mother and I thought this was quite funny for about two weeks. Then mom had had enough. And so the dog jumped up, grabbed the thing, started to run, and my mother, I've never seen my mother move this fast before, stepped on the dish rag and the dog went forward. She grabbed that dish rag, she wrapped it up as you do a towel, and she snapped it. Now, I don't think my mother intended what happened next, but it did. That snap, because my mom was really good at that, that snap ended up right on the dog's nose. And that dog went whining and crying into the bedroom. And we didn't see the dog for about a couple hours. It was gone. Now in this house that we had, we had a giant fireplace with, uh, that, we, that heated the house, 
And in the spring of the year, which is when this happened, we had a fire in the evenings, but in the morning the fire was done, and so there was ashes and there was charcoal in the fireplace. My mother also had a beautiful white carpet that she had just installed next to the fireplace. One day while we were gone, this smart little puppy jumped up into the fireplace and threw all the charcoal and all the ash and everything from the fireplace onto the white carpet. When we got home, I think my mother's scream could be heard for a couple of miles away. She was pretty upset. And I thought, oh my, this is going to be nasty. My mother walks over to the dish towel, picks it up, and my first thought is, my mother's going to kill my little dog. But she walks over, and she hands the dish towel to the dog. The dog takes it in her mouth and runs away. Now that's a silly little story, but it does illustrate the principle that my mother was fully justified in her anger and her righteous anger at the behavior of the dog. But she had a choice at a point for further retaliation or forgiveness and or grace. And she gave grace to that little dog. From that point on, the dog and mom got it wrong great. Compromise is always an act of arbitration. It's always a giving, give and take. Grace is a gift. But we in the Christian church today, oftentimes we get these words blurred in definition and in purpose. We seem to be, as a church in the whole, as in this country, we seem to be accepting lesser standards of compromise and hoping for grace will follow. But history will prove that that is a fool's errand. But we know that there are areas in our lives where we will not compromise. It's hard to show grace. There's an ethical line in the sand where our moral conscience just says, no, can't go there. However, we are pressured in this world that, well, that's not showing compassion. And, you know, you need to be compassionate to everyone. Well, to a degree, yes. But that does not mean turning a blind eye towards sin or accommodating the sin of man. What I hope to show you today is that there's much more strength in grace. There's just as, excuse me, there's just as much strength in grace as there is in the potential for weakness and compromise. It's an interesting and challenging balance. So we're going to look at an Old Testament story and a New Testament story. And the goal is to see the underlying mission or behavior of evil and its thirst for power. If you turn with me to Genesis 39, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Most of us, since we were young, we've heard the story of Joseph. We've heard that he was the little brother. He was the apple of his father's eye. He was a pain to his older brothers. Uh, he was almost killed. He was spared, sold into slavery, rose to power and then was reunited with his family. It is a great story of redemption. It's wonderful. But the incident in Potiphar's house shows a much deeper look at the character of the man and what he went through. And there are principles there we need to consider. So if you would look, please look with me at 39, 1 and 2. When Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard of Egypt, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, they had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and became successful, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, Joseph is a slave. 
Now, he's the lowest of the low. In Middle East standards, he's basically nothing more than property. He's a chair. As was the custom of the time, slaves were sold into service for various households. For Joseph, Potiphar's house was the close to the seat of power. This is in God's sovereign plan of placing Joseph in just the right spot. Being a slave must have been hard for Joseph. He was the son of privilege, father's favorite. He was probably outspoken. He was perhaps a bit arrogant, maybe even youthfully prideful, I'm sure. All of which came crashing down on him through his older brother's jealousy and his near death in the pit and selling into slavery. His life is a mess. Whatever personal drama his family had, he kept his faith and the lessons of God with him at all times. Close to his heart, and we'll see it served him well. But Joseph did not go unnoticed. From his management skills to his personal appearance, he was successful. He was a star. He was a rock star. But success came with challenges. In verse 7, we see that Potiphar's wife confronts Joseph with these words, lie with me, which is the Bible's way of saying she was offering herself to him. Now, we need a context here for the ancient Egypt. Women in ancient Egypt, especially the elite, like Potiphar's wife, were held in very high regard. Women in this position could be considered equal to their husbands within the household. They could even rise to a level of power in government if they so choose. Potiphar's wife was not without influence, as we will see. However, society as a whole in Egypt was very conservative, and the role of women was primarily nurturing the family, care for the home, bearing children. And in Potiphar's, wife, Potiphar's case, there is no mention of children, so we can assume that there are none. Her husband was important and probably very busy, holding a position with Pharaoh, probably often busy and away on duty. We can see how a woman could become bored, not excusing it, but become bored, and how her attentions could be turned to Joseph. Also interesting note, in ancient Egypt during this time, if there was an accusation of adultery, the man paid the price, not the woman. The ultimate price with his life. Now make no mistake, sex is not always about sex. Joseph's morality was going to be severely tested here. Temptation was great, and even though he's a, good, he's a steward over the entire household, this is Potiphar's wife, whom Joseph as a slave still is to be obedient to. In this case, while the text teaches a great lesson in morality, it also has a subcontext that translates to power. The power to manipulate Joseph into being subservient to Potiphar's wife. She's not just after a good time. She's looking for a compromising wedge to place over Joseph to do her bidding. This is sexual blackmail. Perhaps in her mind necessary deception to gain perhaps what she thinks is her rightful place. To say Joseph was not tempted would be denying his humanity. But in his wisdom, he knows who the true enemy is. The true enemy he's fighting is that inner war between good and evil that's waged in every person's heart at the moment of temptation. 
what restraint he shows. In verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? In his response, Joseph shows that he sees through this plot for power. Joseph knows that his sin would remove God's blessing. God blessed the household because of Potiphar and his faith. But now, due to the evil schemes of a disloyal wife, Joseph is in a tough spot. He knows that he is still a sinner, but he is striving to do God's work in the midst of a pagan culture. His heart and mind are at war. The first principle, I think, that we can take from Joseph's life and position here is the challenge of evil is where faith and loyalty of a person is truly tested. When we focus our efforts on God's righteous behavior, ours will follow towards man, regardless of our sinful hearts. He can give in to her wiles and remove God's blessing, or he can resist and face the consequences of a very powerful woman. Joseph, the important aspect, again, is Joseph is looking to the blessings of his life from God and not consumed by the fear of his immediate circumstances, a fear that too often breeds compromise in lesser men. Verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there. Now, one thing that is consistent always with evil is when it is thwarted at one, thwarted at one level, it will change tactics and become more calculating. She entices him again when the house is empty, a perfect opportunity. But this time, Joseph senses the danger and runs from her. She clutches his garment and as he leaves it behind. She then uses this proof of their, of their affair to make Joseph pay for his rejection of her. Paying close attention to the words, we can see the true intention of her heart. She tells, she tells us that after Joseph fled, she seized the opportunity not just to lie about what had happened, but to turn others in the household against Joseph, she told the other men of the house. A conspiracy has been hatched. When her husband comes home, she tells him the same story, of course, undoubtedly backed by other, quote, quote, witnesses. Notice that there's no guilt on her, though. Nothing reflects on her. She even accuses Joseph of mocking her and falsely accusing him of prideful arrogance along with sexual misdeeds. Hers is a desperate act since she has failed in her attempt to control Joseph. She responds with lies and an ethnic slur when she talks to her husband. This Hebrew slave that you brought amongst us, her evil is exposed. So essentially now the accusation with Joseph is rape. Very serious. We can only imagine the anger that burned in Joseph's heart over the developments. Verse 20, and Joseph's master took him and put him into a prison a place where the king's prisoners were confined 
and there he was in prison. Now, the distinction of the prison is probably has some significance, or it wouldn't be mentioned. It was probably the worst of the worst, where there was no chance of escape or reprieve. This was a bad spot. But, verse 21, we still see the Lord's hand upon Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Grace for Potiphar's wife was probably the last thing on Joseph's mind as he was being led away to prison. There's no mention of a defense against the charges. Perhaps the slave couldn't give any. Or perhaps Joseph gracefully decided not to shame Potiphar's wife further. We just don't know. It doesn't say. But what we do know is that Joseph had faced danger many times before and it had not changed or diminished his faith in God in any way. Once again, he's betrayed at the hands of another. Betrayal has become a very big part of Joseph's life. And the lesson that we can learn from this is betrayal of those closest to you always lays the seeds of bitterness. Now, whether those seeds sprout into sin is our choice alone. Joseph had his share of things to be bitter about. Even in the face of evil, Joseph showed grace and did not compromise because of God's eternal love. The consistency of the Lord's favor is unwavering, as illustrated in this story. Joseph's great hope, and ours as well, is that God never abandons those who follow him. Never. The second principle from Joseph's life is when we focus on the efforts of God, God's righteous behavior, ours will follow toward man. Each of us will be confronted with compromising sometimes our moral convictions. Where your mind and heart are at odds, your heart telling you what is righteous thing to do, and your mind perhaps deceiving you into believing that what you decide won't matter. If we're really honest, we have to admit we've all had moments like this. It's part of sin. It's a battleground. It's the battleground we face. The truth is when we compromise on that battleground, God's blessing will be removed. Now, fast forward 2,000 years, move over to John 8, 1 to 11. Another story, this time the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, this next section, if you're following along my Bible, you'll notice there's a footnote there that says it's not in the original manuscripts. I'm not going to debate that or concern myself with the authenticity. I want to see, I want you to see the principle that is displayed in this story of Jesus' actions and the reactions of the Pharisees and the reaction of the woman. John 8, 1 and 2. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and he taught them. Now before we get too far with this story, we need to, again, look at the scene and get a little context of the background. He's outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem, probably out there to escape the persecution of the Pharisees. That was relentless. He perhaps couldn't find a safe and calm place to stay inside the city, so he removed himself out to the Mount of Olives, which meant in the morning, early in the morning, he had to travel back to the temple. When he does, he walks in the temple, he sits down and teaches. Notice that he's not standing. 
He's not standing in the sense of authority. He is down with the people. He is comfortable. He's approximating. It's, a, it's proximity and accommodation to the spot. He's not relinquishing any authority, but he's making connection. Three and four, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst and said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Okay, so you've got this scene where he's teaching and all of a sudden here's this woman. Now, you know, she's not just led in by the hand and said, well, here she is. She is cast in, throw her down, throw her down. The action shows the arrogance and the intention of the mob. This Jesus whom they hated, they wanted to capture in a moral question, a moral issue. Like Potiphar's wife, this is really not about the moral pretext that the Pharisees brought. This is about power. It's good versus evil, Satan versus the almighty God. And this time, it's Satan using the religious leaders, supposedly men of God, as his pawns. Would Jesus have compassion for the woman and compromise the law of Moses? Just as Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to compromise his faith to gain control over him, the Pharisees want power over Jesus. The truth that we always have to remember is that power is the narcotic of evil. Evil can never get enough. The Pharisees state the partial truth of the law of Moses, but show their improper use by not bringing the man also caught. While this rule of adultery was common in Israel at the time, it was seldom enforced. The religious leaders looked the other way. We can see a parallel today, okay, when this continues. Man looks for what's convenient, comfortable, and accommodating to the largest number of people, gaining acceptance, and then authority over others. So it was then, and so it is today. Human nature doesn't change. This is a great sin by the Pharisees. They do not care for the woman, her soul, or her redemption. They only care for their perceived power to confound Jesus. They fear their circumstances or their image more than they care for the morality of God. And grace morality is really what we're talking about here. Now, five and six. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to Jesus that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. Notice the body language here. Jesus is seated teaching in the temple, and then the crowd comes in. The mob comes and throws this humiliated woman in his midst. The teaching stops. Jesus rises, I guess, to meet the mob. But when the Pharisees ask their question, Jesus bends down and writes his finger in the ground. <laughs> what Jesus was doing in the dirt was more important than the prideful Pharisees' statement or question. Jesus knew their hearts, verse 7 and 8. And they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be first to throw the stone. Very common, common verse for us. And once more he bent down on the ground. The Pharisees' question was not asked just once, it was asked several times. Evil is persistent, it will not give up. So he stood and confronted them, stated his question of accusation against them, and then resumed and bent back down. Then we'll see evil retreats 
defeated. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with just the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to them, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now contrast the actions of the people. You have the religious leaders of the day throwing a humiliated woman into the midst, in the dirt and grim of the floor and everything. Jesus, who's been teaching, showing grace and wisdom, tirelessly preaching the love of God. Which one is righteous? Which one? Anyone who witnessed the developments of this morning would be forced to choose between grace morality of God and unjust political compromise. Life always seems easier when we compromise, but righteousness is the hard choice and much more rewarding when we seek the heavenly morality of grace. In the end of our story, the mob couldn't stand up to Jesus' simple question. Neither could the woman. But her response is quite different. She did not turn away. She did not run. She did not boast in her good fortune. She stayed, and her heart was changed in Jesus' words, with Jesus' words of grace and mercy. All those who turned away that day turned away in shame. They left when they should have stayed. They should have sought grace. Instead, they were troubled by their own moral conscience. Now, so how do we apply grace morality? How do we deal with this? Paul tells us in his words in Ephesians 6.10 through 20. Encouragement in the armor of God. The first phrase is particularly meaning to us this morning with what we've been talking about. Finally, verse 10, Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are always faced with difficult choices. When it looks like we have to choose between our values or compromise, we must look deeper into the morality of grace and be clear on what we have to do. It tests our heart. Our stories this morning illustrate this. First, number one, grace morality cares first and foremost about those involved. Joseph cared about his master, his master's house, all that was including in it, including the disloyal and sinful wife. Jesus cared for the adulterous woman while the Pharisees were concerned with power and influence and regardless of the human cost. Two. Grace morality humbly affirms solidarity with the sinner, not moral superiority. Joseph fully understood his position as a slave and authority, and in humility resisted temptation without fear, nor did he retaliate when he was wronged. Jesus, with all authority under heaven, standing over the humiliated sinner, turns and demands justification from the mob for their accusations. Grace three, grace morality seeks not to condemn, but to lead others to a righteous life. Joseph, though a slave, led by example, being a benefit to all, even in the face of evil intentions of others. Jesus showed who's righteous and the path to forgiveness, and even to those who would subvert the very law for their own gain. 
These two stories show us grace without compromise and the difference between real and perceived power. In both cases, the agents of evil plotted to gain power using sex, one of the strongest and most basic of human instincts, one that affects every human being in one way or another in the period of their life, held in the highest regard in the context of marriage by God, and one that is most viciously perverted by evil in this world. It's important to note the stark difference between the purpose of grace and the purpose of evil. Grace always salvages. Evil just wants to destroy. So how do we protect ourselves and assure that we are focused on grace and not pressured into compromise by culture? Ephesians 6.16 has the answer. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts or arrows, depending on what your version says, of the evil one. Now, think just a minute of warfare and think of an arrow coming your way. Isn't that deadly enough? Why is it flaming? I'll tell you why it's flaming. It's because to be successful, evil must consume you. It must consume you, must consume your soul, and it must consume everything that you hold dear in an attempt to satisfy that addictive need for power over you. Evil can and will use compromise to send those consuming arrows your way. This is why we need to understand the difference between grace without compromise. We need to exercise that shield of faith so that in those circumstances, when the going is good, we know that we have the faith, and when the going is bad, we know what we can rely on. Joseph did it in the face of temptation. Jesus did it in the face of a moral dilemma. Potiphar's wife unleashed those arrows against Joseph, and the Pharisees did so against Jesus, but they knew God's gracious morality. Further, we must understand that Satan will use our human frailty against us, don't be deceived to think our human compassion is always rightly placed, or it's gracious. It's not. To be truly gracious to others, we must be good stewards of our blessings. The first step is to recognize them. The second step is to cultivate our time, our energy, and our treasure, and our minds to grow in this faith. The third is to guard them and shield them for righteousness, and then lastly, as directed by God's grace, give them to a hurting world. Make no mistake, we need more Josephs, we need more compassion, but most of all, we need the grace of Jesus. May we strive to understand the true power of God's grace morality and be clearly aware of the consequences of worldly compromise that unleashes those flaming arrows against us. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and your stories of the Old and New Testament that resonate over the centuries. We thank you, Lord, for the lessons that are taught and the 
the power in your gracious, loving care for us, how we can stand firm knowing that that faith and that shield is there for us, Lord, but we also acknowledge our frailty within that framework. Grant us the strength, Lord, to stand strong against the evil one in all levels of our lives and that of our families. We ask your blessing for this time together. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Please stand for our hymn of response. Hymn 497, More Love to Thee. <clears throat> 